0: All right, the time has crept up on us. It's time to get started with our Sunday school class. So uh, feel free to get your coffee and donut and find a place, and let's dig into the Word of God together. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, and I think we may only have time to tackle the first three verses, uh, which is basically an introductory. But there's there's going to be a big history lesson here. Um, The first three verses are heavily geopolitical in nature, uh, as well as spiritual. So all these things are going to be lumped uh, together. So before we uh, go any further, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for another opportunity to meet in your house with your people to learn more about your word to go deeper than just the surface of what the word says and go deeper and behind the scenes of the uh, history uh, the culture the customs um, and, and the spiritual uh, climate of that day and time so father we pray that you would just uh, allow your holy spirit to work in our hearts and minds to open up our hearts and minds to be our guide and our teacher this morning as we read your word help us to know what it's trying to say to us so we could better understand it and better apply it to our lives and we ask and pray these things in yeshua's name amen all right so genesis chapter 14 and i'm going to read the first three verses and we're just going to pick these apart because there's a lot in here there's a lot of names that are being thrown out there's a lot of meaning behind these names and the people that uh, these names represent future nations They represent future peoples that we're going to encounter later on in the Word of God. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 14 of Genesis, Now it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king Bela, this is Zohar. All of these kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim. this is the salt sea. So right off the bat, the, uh, the, the writer of the scriptures is throwing a lot of names, a lot of nations, and a lot of information at us at once. And if you don't know uh, what's behind the scenes of those, it, it could become easily confusing, especially names that we're not uh, uh, so good at pronouncing. We can say names like Fred and George and Tim and Barb and Susan. But when you get to Cheddarla Omer, that's a mouthful. And sometimes we butcher those names because we're not used to the uh, phonetic languages. So uh, Cheddarla Omer, uh, he's kind of like the leader. He's kind of like heading up this one army so you're going to have two armies that are going to be fighting and, and, and combating each other in this passage you've got team chederla omer which is made up of chederla omer amraphel arioch and Tidal. these four kings are teaming up in an alliance against team bera now bera has on his side uh birsha uh Shinab, Shamibur, and bella so you have uh, these four, uh, four kings against five. And uh, Team Bera is rebelling and uh, rebelling against and refusing the vassalhood and paying tribute to Team Chederla Omer. So that's why you have this rift and you have this battle that's about to take place. Uh, team Bera, made up of Birsha, uh Shemeber, and Bela, they were tired of the oppression and the rulership of uh omer and his alliance against them they were having to pay heavy taxes heavy tribute and they were just tired of being oppressed they wanted to be their own alliance they wanted to be their own nation so they decided to stop paying these taxes and stop paying these tribute and uh, um, stop obeying uh omer and all of his alliance and they wanted to break off on their own well, Team Chudrila Omer seen this as kind of a slap in the face and they're like, no, we conquered you. You are our vassal. <clears throat> so you're going to have to do what we say and we're not going to let you get away with this. So we're going to go to war with you because if you had uh, one nation that was conquered, breaking away from that conquering nation, it would make that conquering nation look weak and uh, look like they didn't have control over the people. So it was their reputation that was at stake because if word got out that Bera, uh broke away from Cheddarla Omer, uh, then the other nations that were subject to Cheddarla Omer would think, well, if they did it, we can do it too. If they successfully broke away, then we can do it too because we don't want to pay this tribute. We want to keep our money. We want to keep our resources. So there was a lot at stake here for Team Cheddarla Omer. So let's kind of look at these uh, kings and the nations that they ruled and their alliance and what it meant then and what it means in the future. So Chaturla Omer means sheaf band. That's what his name means. Now there is a a feast uh, that's called the Counting of the Omer. And it takes place from, um, I believe it takes place from Passover to Pentecost. There's 50 days. Uh, between that period. So you're counting the omer, you're counting the sheaves. It's an agricultural time. So chedr omer means sheaf ban and what a sheaf ban is is like if you're cutting wheat and you bind it in a pile and you just stand it up in the field to get later or later to be harvest you put a band around it so that sheaf pile doesn't fall apart or blow away or, or whatnot. So this is symbolic of this king having control over the people because oftentimes the sea or um, fields of grain is often attributed to people and even Yeshua said this He goes, look out into the fields and see that, are, that they are white unto harvest So basically he was using the, the field of grain to symbolize people and their readiness to hear the gospel and to come into the kingdom, to be harvested into the kingdom So kind of in the same vein, chedr omer, meaning sheaf ban, he was this band that kept these peoples together that kept them, that kept tight reign and tight control over the people. So it was it was a, uh, a name representing power and authority and leadership. So it's the band that keeps the sheaf of the Omer together. Now Chedarla Omer in his kingdom, uh, he says he was the king of Elam. He was the king of Elam. Now um, Elam uh, is, is, it, it will, will be eventually become Iran. Elam is what we know today is Iran. Um, Elam was a city state, and it uh, eventually became Shushan and Susa. And these names are familiar to us because they show up in the book of Esther. So, um, you know, the, 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 the king that's in the book of Esther was probably some sort of descendant or relative of Chedorla Omer. Chedorla Omer uh, was uh, of the Medio Persians. He was a Medo-Persian king. And the thing about the Medo-Persians is they had a really strict rule that if they made a law, that it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be amended, it couldn't be broken. Whenever they made a law, it was set in stone and it was forever. So when Haman tricked uh, the king to cite uh, a rebellion against the Jewish people and to create genocide and wipe them out, he and, and Esther finally revealed herself as, uh, as a Jew uh the king couldn't just say oh okay well i understand now well let's just repeal this law he couldn't the only thing he could do was allow the jews uh to be able to uh, to have the permission to fight back the only thing he could do was possibly arm them give them permission to fight back because regardless the law was made they were going to die and be slaughtered on a certain day so the king said well i can't change the law you can't change the law of the medes and the persians so you know what i'll do is is give you permission to fight back and um you know the lord was with them and helped them and we see the same thing as it, within daniel in the lion's den you know when when uh, they they tricked the king to make that law for 30 days nobody could pray to anybody but the king well daniel didn't change his habit he every day three times a day he faced east towards jerusalem and prayed to the one true god of israel Well, he got caught got caught red-handed during this 30-day period where you were only to pray to the king so regretfully the king had to you know throw him in the lion's den and hope for the best he couldn't change that law so this is who Cheddarla omer is he uh he is the king of the the medes and the persians and uh elam where uh, he ruled eventually became what we know as iran so you move on uh you have um, you have Eleazar, uh, Eleazar uh, he eventually became the, uh, Greece. He eventually became the, Greece, uh, the nation of Greece. Uh, there's also some kind of relations to Assyria there. Uh, so you have um, the uh, Ariok, king of Eleazar. So Eleazar is, is Greece. Ariok was the king, and his name means lion-like. Lion-like. And uh, Ariok was of the people of the Aegeans. He was an Aegean king, meaning lion-like. And he ruled what would eventually become Greece or related to Greece. Uh, There's also some ties to Assyria there as well. Now, the very first one named is uh, Armraphel, king of Shinar. Now, you probably won't believe who this is. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar, if you remember, was the plain that the Tower of Babel was built on. The plains of Shinar. The people came together as one and uh, attempted to build the Tower of Babel. The languages were confused, and Nimrod was disposed as the king. Now, back in the day, if you wanted to change, if you wanted a fresh start, and you wanted a clean slate. You basically changed your name and you created yourself into someone else because your name carried the reputation of your past and carried the reputation of your past reign. He didn't want to be called Nimrod anymore because Nimrod meant failure. Nimrod meant rebellion against God. Nimrod meant that he had failed and everybody would remember Babel in connection with him. And so he wanted to create a new persona, wanted to become a new person. So his name uh, was, uh, arm, uh, Amraphel, Amraphel, which means powerful or destroyer of people, which relates back to his name, Nimrod. Nimrod means rebellion against God, but it says Nimrod was like a mighty hunter before the Lord. He hunted for people. He hunted for slaves. So Amraphel carries that, that same kind of connotation because it means powerful or destroyer of peoples. So believe it or not, um, Amraphel is actually Nimrod. Now, Nimrod was king of the world. And after this whole Tower of Babel debacle, he become very humble, very low. Uh, he was put low on the totem pole. It's like, it's like the UFC. The UFC, you've got all these guys that are fighting and competing against each other. And the guys that are lower in rank, if they beat somebody higher in rank, automatically they kind of go to the top and they're in contention for a title bout. So it's kind of the same thing with the kings. You know, with this big failure of the Tower of Babel, Nimrod was put to the bottom of the totem pole and he had to work himself back up this ladder of power and reputation. So we find that uh, Amraphel, AKA Nimrod, king of Shinar is in subjection to uh omer king of Elam. So Chedor Olo- Olo- Olu- Cheddar king of Alam, is the top dog. He is the leader, the world leader. He's, he's in the place where Nimrod was before the whole Tower of Babel debacle. And we see Nimrod was kind of uh, taken down a few notches, and he's kind of had to work his way up. And he is in alliance with and a vassal to chedr omer So we have now in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar. Okay, we covered him. Chetal-Omer, king of Elam. Um, Let's see. And Tidal, king of the Goyim. Now, Tidal would eventually become Turkey and Rome. And Tidal was a Hittite king, and the name means renown. It It means to be famous. And he was king of the goyim goyim is the hebrew pronunciation of gentile gentiles so goyim simply means nations it's kind of a generic term for people a generic term for all different kinds of nations and these specific nations are the western nations of turkey and syria that king title a Hittite king meaning renowned that he kind of ruled over. That was the Goyim that he was ruling over, was uh, the area of Western Turkey and Syria. So it says that um, verse 2, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom. Now Bera means gift. And indeed, Bera thought he was. God's gift to everybody and everything, because remember how generous he tried to be with Abraham after the battle? You know, and and, uh, Abraham says, I'm not taking anything from you. I'm not taking any gifts from you, because if I do in the future, you're going to say I'm the one who made Abraham rich. So I'm not taking anything from you. So Bera, king of Sodom, it means uh, his name means gift. Now, of course, Sodom, we have that in our own English language. And it has been on the law books, there's laws against sodomy. Sodomy has become synonymous with homosexuality. And uh so that's that's what Sodom is known for. So Sodom and Gomorrah is had become known for anything that was uh sexual perversion, sexual deviance, or sexually immoral. And the word Gomorrah means submersion. It means submersion. So it's almost as if the people of Gomorrah were submerged in this sexually immoral lifestyle. Now, Gomorrah's king was birsha, meaning thick. It could have meant that he was thick headed, which I think he was because he was in rebellion against God. His people were in rebellion against God. Their lands were eventually destroyed. But it also probably meant that he was fat because a lot of kings, they were fat. Remember uh, in the book of Judges, uh, where one of the kings that, uh, that was in charge was, uh, he was a fat man, Egla, um, Egla was a very fat man, right? And then you had uh, the judge, let me see if I can find him and remember his name here. I like to call it the story of lefty killed fatty. That's what I like to call that story, lefty killed fatty, because you had this left-handed judge uh, who was against this fat king that took over their nation, and uh ehud that's his name ehud ehud was a left-handed man and it was very unusual to be left-handed because you know back in the day your right hand and left hand represented things right hand represented grace and favor left hand was represented wrath and judgment but also your left hand was your dirty hand they didn't have toilet paper like we do so whenever they had to do their business they used their left hand to do their business and they did all their bi- the good things with their right hand because it was clean and uncontaminated. So it was kind of unusual Ehud being a, a, a left-handed predominant person. But uh, he ended up uh, killing uh, Eglon, that was uh, the pagan king that was ruling over Israel at that time. And it said that he created a, a, a short sword, like a, like a dagger. And when he stabbed him, he was so fat and so thick that the sword got swallowed up by his fat. You, he couldn't even pull the sword out after he stabbed him. So I was kind of a little off track there, but a uh, little bit more information for you guys. Uh, so that, that is, um, let's see, verse, verse 2. They made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bershah, king of Gomorrah, and Sinab, king of Adma. Now, Sinab is kind of an unusual name. It means father's tooth. Father's tooth. And um, Adma means earth or ground. Earth or ground. And it says, uh, Shem Eber, king of Zeboim. Shem Eber uh, means uh, splendor. Splendor. And it also means name, because the word Shem uh, means name. Sometimes when if, if Jewish people, they don't want to pronounce God's Hebrew name, yud heh yahweh so they'll say HaShem. Which means the name one of Noah's sons was called Shem and so Shem means name Eber is kind of related to the word Hebrew and it means one who is crossed over so it, it means splendor or reputation but it also means the name that is crossed over possibly implying that this name is being carried from one nation to another as they go on conquering and Zeboim means gazelles Gazelles And it says uh, and the king Bella this is Zoar Bella means to devour Means to devour Zoar means small And if you'll remember Zoar is the city that lot and his daughters asked the angels if they could go to instead of going and hiding out in the caves of the hills Said, look it's just a little town it's small uh, can you just spare that one and let us go there because we're afraid to go into the mountains why were they afraid to go into the mountains because that's where the pagan gods lived that was their domain and territory the the, the mountains and the hills were haunted they were haunted by demons they were haunted by the the gods of the nations because most uh, sacred holy sites to pagan people were built on mountains because they, were, they pointed up to, to the heavens, and they were closer to the heavens. And so uh, that's where we recall Zoar. Now, Bella, he ruled over Esau's sons. Now, this is according to Jasher, the book of Jasher, chapter 57. Now, it's interesting. Esau did not have his own descendants rule over his people. They got a foreigner to rule over them. Which is quite strange. Bella was not a descendant of Shem. Bella was a descendant of Ham, one of uh, Noah's other sons. And so the sons of Esau had the Hamites rule over them. All right, so now we, we uh, discovered who these kings were, what their names mean, what nations they eventually will become in the future. So we've got this, uh, this story set up really well. So, um, let's go on to verse 3. All these kings joined forces in the valley of Sidom. This is the Salt Sea. The Salt Sea is none other than the Dead Sea in Israel. Now, this is near the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, let's see this is this is the place near Sodom and Gomorrah and it's the salt Sea now what happened when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed it says that that God rained fire and brimstone sulfur upon uh, upon Sodom and Gomorrah and totally destroyed it and uh, so uh, a lot of people believe that that um, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea was kind of a result or one of the consequences of this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That when God rained down fire and sulfur, it created, it, it landed, part of it landed in the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea and caused a deluge into the area of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, it became a, a land, a salt based land where nothing can grow. So let's see. All these kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that, that is the salt sea. Verse 4 For 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled, and we already discussed that. In the 14th year, uh, Chedorlaomer came with the kings who were with him, and they defeated the Rephaim. Who are the Rephaim? Yeah, good job, guys. The Rephaim are the giants. The Rephaim, and the Rephaim is kind of a a nod to these giants' ancestors because because Repha Repha means the dead. So the Rephaim were a people who venerated their ancestors and venerated the dead. And these dead ancestors were the Nephilim from the flood. They were the giants from the flood and so these rephaim were also giants because the bible says they were giants in the days of noah and afterward so they venerated their giant dead ancestors now these spirits of these giant dead ancestors of the nephilim are what we call today demons they are daimon in the greek meaning a unclean or a familiar spirit a lot of people think that demons are fallen angels Mm-mm, two totally different things the fallen angels are still respected Though they have rebelled, though they have fallen, they still have power. Therefore, they are respected. And in the scriptures, a fallen angel is still an angel. Remember when Michael was disputing over the body of Moses in the letter of Jude? He said that he wouldn't speak against, you know, he wouldn't speak against Satan. And Satan is a fallen angel. He wouldn't say anything against him because he still respected him because he had power. And so he said, may the Lord rebuke you. He didn't say, I rebuke you or I command you. He said, may the Lord rebuke you. So fallen angels are still called angels in the scripture, but they are rebellious. They are fallen. Demons are called familiar spirits or unclean spirits. And so when the giants were killed in the flood, their bodies died, but their spirits still lived on. There's no place for them in eternity. There's no place for them until the judgment day. They couldn't go to heaven, they couldn't go to hell because they were not fully human and they were not fully angelic. So they are doomed to roam the earth until judgment day. So they are uh, they are what we call demons today. These are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, the disembodied spirits of the giants now when some of the the fallen angels that had rebelled against god and cohabitated with women to create these nephilim the vast majority of them were locked away in the abyss or tartarus in the greek and we find that in the book of jude and also in peter's letters about those the angels who left their first estate and they rebelled against god they were locked up so they are considered the old gods because when they fell and as fallen angels they took on the persona of these false gods so once they were locked away they really had no more power and influence so it was their their descendants their their um progeny which in other words is these nephilim these these demons now these demons are the new gods these demons started taking on the name and the reputation of these gods who are locked away for judgment day in the abyss or in tartarus uh, so that's just kind of another background thing. still a little off track, but still relevant. So it says, uh, we're back at verse 5. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer omer came with the kings who were with him, and they defeated the Repha- Rephaim and Ashtarot-Kiranim. All right. And then it goes on to say the Zuzim and Ham. Now, you notice that these giant clans, they don't come from Japheth. They don't come from Shem. They don't come from the Jewish and Arab people, the Hebrew people. They don't come from you know the Greeks or the you know or, or, or the Gentiles, the the white Caucasian Asian people. They come from Ham, because who was cursed? Canaan, Ham's son. Ham wasn't cursed, but Canaan was cursed. So it might be an allusion too that he was cursed because even though the giants were wiped out. And it says in Genesis that Noah was pure. In other words, Noah was genetically pure. His sons were genetically pure. We're not guaranteed that his son's wives were genetically pure. So there is a theory that the reason it says that they were giants in those days and afterwards is there is a theory that maybe uh, Ham's wife carried that latent Nephilim gene because the giants in Noah's day uh, were like 20, 30 feet tall. And the giants that are after the flood, they were smaller. They were nine feet tall, ten feet tall, fifteen feet tall. They didn't come near the height of the giants before the flood. So we see that it's you know kind of you know when you make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, you you degrade in in the sharpness of the image and the quality of the image. What's kind of the same because the original giants were wiped out. You still had these latent genes, and like for instance uh you know when you take a genetic test a dna test the more recent genes are going to show more prominent and the the older genes that are that are like five percent of your makeup ten percent of your makeup you know those are older those are more of the original genes that you have the original dna but the newer dna is going to show up more recent and more prominent so there was probably a latent nephilim gene within ham's wife and that's why uh, Canaan was cursed, because it was from the Canaanite nations that these giants arose. So you have the giant clans. So let's read verses 5 through 7. We'll get into this a little deeper. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer Omer came with the kings who were with him, and they defeated the Rephaim in um, Ashtarot Kiranim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim and Shavai Kiriatim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, which is beside the wilderness. Then they came again to En Mishpat, that is in Kadesh, and they subdued all the territories of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazaran uh, Tamir. So you have human clans and giant clans. Let's first cover the giant clans. The giant clans, of course, were the offspring of the fallen angels, the Nephilim. So you have the Rephaim, which was the royal kingly clan of the giants. They worshipped and venerated their dead ancestors, but the Rephaim were royalty in the giant clans. You have the Zuzim, and Zuzim means to move, to arouse, or to disturb. So they were troublemakers. The Zuzim were troublemakers, and by the definition of their name, you could probably guess that they were likely a nomadic giant tribe that just went around raiding all the time, raiding people, raiding villages, raiding cities, raiding all the time. They were the Zuzim. You have the e and their, me- their name means terror, probably because they looked very scary, you know, because a lot of times, even in fairy tales, you see giants. They're not pretty. They're ugly. They look like ogres. And if they are offspring, uh, you know, of the fallen angels, uh, you know, they probably did look pretty horrific. Even even people with the disease of giantism, which I'm not saying they're connected with Nephilim at all, because there's a difference between gigantism, the malady, and giants. Gigantism will make people grow tall and it'll disfigure their face, but they're not agile They're not strong. Their muscles are weak and a lot of times they'll have bowed legs and they won't be able to walk around very well They have a lot of health problems and health issues. They're easily defeated So they they don't have a Nephilim gene They just have a mutation within their DNA that causes them to grow to gigantic heights but they're not part of the giants. The giants uh, that are in the Bible, they were fast, they were swift, they were healthy, they were strong, they were hard to beat, they were hard to defeat. Think of Goliath. You know, nobody wanted to take on Goliath. They were terrified of him because he was a, a warrior since his birth, that is what Saul said, but David was brave enough to do it because he said, it's not me that's gonna defeat him, it's God that's gonna defeat him. So just, you know, we still have giants today, but I don't think that they're related at all to the Nephilim, uh, you know, cause a lot of these people who have gigantism have a lot of health issues and it just doesn't relate, doesn't relate. Uh, so Emim means terrors. Maybe they looked frightening, but also maybe they were terrorists because there's different ways of fighting. You can engage in battle one-on-one face-to-face on the battlefield. Or you can be terrorist and, and be subversive. You don't meet on the battlefield. You just throw monkey wrenches into everybody else's plans. You plant bombs. You plant traps. So maybe this kind of gives a little character uh, of, of who the Emim were. Now, again, these were giant tribes. So now on to the um, human tribes. You had the Horites. The Horites were from the descendants of Ham. They were considered Canaanites. They intermarried with the Edomites. They they intermarried with Esau and Esau's people. And it said the Horites were in Seir, which is Esau's territory. So you had the Hamites and the Shemites through Esau that come together to create the Horites. They were part Hamitic or Canaanite and part of Esau's clan. Then you had the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were also descendants of Esau. Amalek was Esau's grandson. And, you know, that Esau and Jacob, they were brothers, twin brothers that didn't get along. And they fought all the time. And so Esau continually, through the generations, held this grudge against Jacob and his descendants. So they were constant enemies of the Amalekites and of Amalek and of Esau. But the scripture tells us not to hate those that are from Esau, they're still our brothers. We're not to treat them bad. We're not to hate them. You know, if they push first, then we can fight them, but don't initiate fights. Let them be. You also had the Amorites, which the Amorites were a Semitic-speaking tribe. So these were the human tribes that, that were in this scenario here. So moving on, let's go to verse 8. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah. The king of zeboim the king of bela this is zoar went out and lined themselves up for battle with them in the valley of Sidom, against Chedorlaomer, omer king of elam titled king of goyim amraphel king of shinar and Arioch, king of eleazar four kings against five now the valley of Sidom was full of tar pits and the kings of sodom and gomorrah fled they fell into them and those who remained fled into the hills. So obviously those kings of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't familiar with the terrain that they were fighting in. They probably weren't familiar with where the tar pits were, what tar pits could do, and so they fell into them, those that didn't escape to the hills. Uh, Verse 11, so they took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's possessions and their food and left. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions, And they left as he was living in Sodom. So you remember last week we talked about Lot, who wasn't backslidden. He was righteous. He had good intentions. He was wanting to judicially uh, change Sodom and Gomorrah by becoming a judge and leader in that city. And the scriptures tell us that his heart was pained by the immorality of Sodom so uh they were kind of like uh caught in the uh, crossfire in the crosshairs innocent bystanders and collateral damage in this war against the four kings against the five and so lot in this battle in this war was taken uh, captive and hostage and we see that abram uh eventually gets wind of this okay so so um So verse 10 through 12 tells us about the battle, which we just read. Moving on to verse 13. Then a survivor came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Hebrew means one who has crossed over, because remember he crossed over into the Canaan land, and when he crossed over, God said, I'm going to give this to you. Who was dwelling by the the large trees belonging to Mamre, which remember, Mamre means fatness. It's kind of related to milk, sustenance, the, the mammary glands, if you will. Of Mamre, the Amorite. And again, if you remember, we just said that the Amorites were Semitic speaking peoples. So the Amorites and, and Abram spoke the same language. There was no language barrier there. The brother of Eshkol, and remember, the valley of Eshkol is where the spies end up finding those large, large grapes. So you'll remember that name from that account. And the brother of Enir, uh, they were Abram's allies. So if you remember, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we just think that Abram was just a a family man. You know, he had some servants, but that was about it. But if you remember last week, I told you that Abram was almost like a king in his own right. He was a nomad, yes, but he had a great amount of people. And we see later he had uh, how many people uh, fighting on his side? You know he it gives a number here and we'll get into that but he had a number of people that were trained for war within his little small nomadic kingdom that went out to rescue lot so uh it says huh yeah 318 so abram had 318 trained men his own personal army now if you were just a family guy and just a nomad simple nomad why would you need an army you wouldn't have an army only kings and nations have armies uh, you sure you're gonna have some people that will kind of keep watch and kind of protect the clan or could protect the people But this was a legit army here. They were trained so uh, Abraham was kind of a small king in and of himself and as a result uh, The people around him realized that Abram was rising up in power in possessions in wealth in authority in Control of the land. So they wanted to be Abrams friends and be his allies so you have it says um, then the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was dwelling by the large tree belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anar. So Eshcol and Anar, they were Abram's allies. So they too had small kingdoms that they were, that they were controlling, small clans, nomadic clans that they were uh, controlling. So basically, you have in one verse, you have four kings against five, and then here you have three kingdoms against the four and the five, right? Because they were kind of outsiders in this battle. They didn't They didn't really have a dog in this fight. The only reason that Abram got involved is because his nephew was at stake. And again, this was before Ishmael and Isaac was born. So maybe Abram was possibly thinking, if God doesn't give me, like he promised, a descendant, then it's gonna go to Lot because he's my nephew and closest relative. He's the closest thing I got to a son. And of course, I'm sure that Sarah was saying, Abram, you got to do something. This is my, you know, this is my brother here, or, you know, this is my relative, you know, we got to save, we got to save Lot. Okay, so Abram and his allies were seen, uh, let's see. All right, so yeah, let me keep reading here. Verse 14, when Abram heard that this kinsman had been taken captive, he rallied his trained men, those born in his household, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram must have had a lot of confidence in his God, in the God of Israel, in Yahweh, uh, to take 318 men, a small guerrilla force against Israel. Nine kings and nine kingdoms. Then he divided his servants against them at night, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Hova, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, and his possessions, as well as the women and the other people. So verses thirteen to sixteen, Abram and his allies were seen to team Chetterla Omer and team Bera as tribal clan kings. Who had servant armies. So Abram means uh, father of the peoples. Mamre, as we learned, means fatness, vigor. Eshkel means cluster of grapes. And it reminds us of that story that we're going to read later of the spies uh, spying out the land and finding the uh, cluster of grapes in Eshkel. Anar means waterfall. And so you had 318 uh, uh, servants who were kind of almost like adopted sons. Like Eleazar was to inherit Abram's fortune if Isaac didn't come along. And probably Lot was in contention of this because I think Abram kind of adopted him as a son. So these two guys might have had to split Abram's uh, estate if Ishmael and Isaac wasn't born. So these 318 servants of Abram were kind of like extended family to Abram all right we got plenty of time moving on to verse 17 now after he returned from defeating Chedorlaomer omer and the kings who were with him the king of sodom went out to meet him in the valley of shava that is the king's valley so again it's pretty amazing 318 servants plus abram and his two allies stood toe-to-toe with these nine other kings and nine other kingdoms and were able to rescue Lot and not have any losses or fatalities themselves. That is pretty amazing because these other kings and these other kingdoms were way larger, way bigger, more fortified, more trained in warfare. But we see that Team Bera, Uh, didn't have the home field advantage because they fell in the tar pits it talks about so it says now after the return from defeating Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him the king of Sodom went out to meet them in the Valley of Sheva this is the king's valley so you had these nine other kings and now we're specifically talking about you know the king of Sodom they're like wow this Abraham guy and his allies stood toe-to-toe with us and came out on top Wow, he, you know, he must have powerful gods on his side. He must be rising up in the ranks, so we want to be his friend. We don't want to be his enemy. So let's schmooze him and 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 wine and dine him and smooth talk him because we want him on our side. We don't want him against us. He was able to rescue his nephew. So verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of El Elyon. Now, who is Melchizedek? This is a big debate and a big mystery, huh? He's a priest, right? He's the king of Salem, but he's also a priest of El Elyon. El Elyon means God Most High, the Most High God. He's the top dog. So El Elyon is is another title for Yahweh, for Abraham's God, for the God that we serve. So it says, then Melchizedek. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem. Salem is what would uh, uh, in the future become Jerusalem. Salem is still part of the name Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So uh, Jerusalem means city of peace. So he was the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. He was also the king of Salem, the king of peace. And he brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of El Elyon. He was the priest of God Most High. So who is this Melchizedek? A lot of people say this Melchizedek, he's a mystery. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody knows where he came from. But according to the rabbis and sages in Jewish tradition, this is none other than Noah's son Shem. Because Shem inherited the priesthood out of the three sons of Noah. He was the one who inherited the priesthood. He was the one who who through prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah was going to come through. So uh, that's who it was. It, it was Shem. Now, this is also one person can re- represent or allude to someone else. A lot of times you've probably heard and grown up hearing that Melchizedek was a, a Christophany, uh, a manifestation of Jesus Christ in pre incarnate form before he was born in the New Testament. And I think that Melchizedek represents Yeshua, but I believe that Melchizedek was actually Shem, uh, Noah's son. And uh, verse verse 19 okay verse 19 he blessed him and said blessed be Abram by Elion, creator of heaven and earth so we now we know for sure Elion is Yahweh that it's you know the same God that Abraham serves and blessed be and blessed be El Elion, who gave over your enemies into your hands so the credit is for winning the battle is not Abram in his prowess in his 318 army men. It his his uh, the credit is given to God, and he's saying, "I know Abram that you acknowledge that God helped you win this battle." Then Abram gave him a tenth, that is a tithe of everything. So this is one of the traditions before even the Torah was written or codified that you know anybody that was a priest or served the god most high out of love and respect and provision for them because their job is to serve god uh you were to give them a tenth of what you had whether it was flocks herds food what have you then the king of sodom boy what an arrogant pompous jerk the king of sodom said to abram remember his name the king of sodom was uh let me see if we can find was bera which means gift so he thought you know, he was going to win Abram over by giving to him. and he said, he said to Abram, give me the people and the possessions take for yourself. Just give me back my people and just take everything as a reward. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand in oath to Adonai, Elion, the Lord Most High God, creator of heaven and earth, not a thread or even a sandal strap, Of all that is yours will I take so that you will not say I have made Abram rich now the tradition about Sodom and Gomorrah is when somebody came to visit the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah um, you know uh, they would treat people badly and then take these people to court when they wanted justice for instance you know somebody would come and there's one story that talks about uh, somebody from Sodom hitting somebody across the head and causing them to bleed and they're like, hey, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take you to court. And they're like, hey, go ahead. So they go to the courts of Sodom, and he's saying, hey, one of your guys just hit me in the head and bloodied my head and gave me this big brump. And the guy in Sodom says, yeah, sure, I did it. But the guy had a demon in him, and I hit his head, and so I actually healed him and cured him. And the judge will say, oh, well, I understand that now. Well, it's, you know, and let the guy go. So they were they were in, in the habit of turning the tables. On people. And so that's why Bera, he had some ulterior motive to have Abraham take all his possessions. Abram knew about this, knew about his reputation, and said, No, I'm not playing that game. So he says, um, Not a thread or even a sandal strap of all that is yours will I take, so that you will not say, I have made Abram rich. I claim nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me Anar and Eshkel and Mamre. Let them take their share. So he's like, they can take whatever they want from you, but I'm not going to take nothing because everything I get comes from God. Okay, so now back to Melchizedek really quickly before we close. Yeshua, Jesus Christ, he's not a Levitical priest. He comes from the tribe of Judah, right? So how can he be prophet, priest, and king? Because he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to Hebrews. Which Melchizedek is an older and higher order of priesthood than the Levites. The Levites were initiated after Melchizedek. So when Yeshua returns, he is going to come as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he is going to be the supervisor over the Levitical priesthood in the Third Temple as he reigns as prophet, priest, and king from the Third Temple. So the Levites didn't come till 400 years later. Okay, so we'll go ahead and close, and uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the richness of your word and everything that we could absorb and learn from it. I know that it was a lot, but I pray that you would help the people to understand and to assimilate it, to understand the Bible and the history behind the Bible better so that they can understand future things that they'll run into in the scriptures, and they'll say, ah, okay, this relates back to what I was taught. Uh, So, Father, uh, we love you. We praise you. And we ask and give thanks for all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.